I wish I could have been there. You ever said that before? I wish I could have been there. Maybe you hear about some amazing historical event. You read about it, some life changing, world altering event. And you say, I wish I wish I could have been there. I mentioned before that when I was a kid, I really wanted to be a astronaut. That is until I rode the double Ferris wheel at Lake Winnipesoka and was scared out of my mind. And my dad said to me, well, son, if you can't handle the double Ferris wheel, you're never going to space. And that was that was a good word. It was hard to hear, but it was a good word. But before that traumatic event, I wanted to be an astronaut. I remember watching the footage. It wasn't live, but I watched the old footage of the lunar landing. And I remember thinking, wow, to be with Neil Armstrong, the summer of 69, to to be the first human being to set foot on another planet. How can you not see that and say, I wish I could have been there? What a event. What what event in world history do you wish you could have been there as an eyewitness? We've been studying the gospel according to Luke, and we know from chapter one, verse two, that Luke tells us he wrote this gospel based on the accounts of many eyewitnesses, those who were there at the very beginning of the public ministry and the life, the death, the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And there's events recorded in Luke's gospel that I imagine would make you say, I wish I could have been there. So think about Christ's baptism or the feeding of the 5,000 or when he he walked on the sea or when he heals the demoniac or when he is is teaching the scriptures with authority or when he's cleansing a leper with a word. Of course, when he's on the cross dying for the sins of his people, when he rises again gloriously on the third day. Think about all these amazing events and you think to yourself, what would it have been like to have been there? This morning, we're considering another amazing event in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a glorious transition point, not only in the gospel of Luke, but in the history of the whole world. In Luke chapter nine, we find this glorious transition point. When Jesus begins in chapter 9, verse 51, to make his long march to Jerusalem. And in Luke chapter 9, Jesus has told us what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem. Jesus is going to suffer, be betrayed. He's going to be crucified. And on the third day, he's going to rise again from the dead. He's headed to Jerusalem to die. This is not only a major turning point in Luke's gospel because the story of Jesus is the most important thing in the history of the world. This is a major turning point in the history of the world. And as we read this passage, I hope there's a sense when you you say to yourself, I wish I could have been there. What happened on that mountaintop 2000 years ago? What did the apostles see? What did they hear? And what significance could that event 2000 years ago possibly have for you and for me and for our church this morning? For answers to all of those questions, open your Bibles to Luke chapter nine. I'm going to begin reading there in verse 28. 
If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find this on page 867. Um, I'd encourage you to have your Bibles open. If you're not used to reading a Bible, chapter 9 is the big number, the verse numbers of those little sentence numbers. Let's listen now as Luke tells us about the transfiguration. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent. And told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Years after this event, one of the guys who was there that day, the Apostle John, said these words. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his what? Glory. Glory. As of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's my prayer this morning. I have one main aim this morning in one prayer is that we all would see the glory of Christ in and through this passage and that by seeing the glory of Christ, we would be changed and that the 10,000 things that are going on in our lives right now, that we would see all of them in relation to the most important thing in the universe, which is the exaltation of Jesus Christ, the son of God. The main point of this passage is in verse 35. Look at it with me. And a voice came from out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Your Bible may say my beloved one. Here's the point. Listen to him. Do you see that? God, the father speaks from heaven concerning his son and says, hear him, heed him, listen to him. So the main point of this passage is to listen to the son. Everything in this passage unpacks and explains and illustrates who the son is and why we must listen to him. So I have three reasons why you must listen to God's son. Three reasons. First, listen to Jesus because he's God's glorious son. Listen to Jesus because he's God's glorious son. If you're taking notes, that's number one. Listen to God's glorious son. That's verses 28 and 29. Look again at verse 29. 
As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. We'll get to that in a minute. I just want you to see that right after Jesus has made these these predictions about some of his disciples seeing the kingdom come in power, Luke in verses 28 and 29 connects explicitly what he's just said to what's going about to happen on the Mount of Transfiguration. You see it right there. After these sayings, verse 28, he took with him his inner circle. Jesus had three close inner circle among the 12 disciples, Peter, James, and John. They go up to a, an unnamed mountain. We're told in one of the other gospels that it's a high mountain and they go up there for the purpose of prayer. Luke tells us that. So they go up and what's going to happen on this mountain, I'm arguing, is a display of Christ's kingdom glory. We're going to see the king in his glory. And that's explicitly alluded to back in verse 27, that that all of the the glorious acts of God in Christ that are going to follow this, his resurrection, the power displayed at Pentecost, the spread of the gospel in the church, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, his glorious second coming. All of those are kind of pictured and previewed with what happens here on this mountain. Now they go up to pray. As you can imagine, it must have been late because we're told later that Peter and James and John fall asleep. I mean, every time they go to pray, they fall asleep. Okay, If you ever fall asleep in your prayer time, you're in good company because the apostles do it all the time. But they kind of doze off. But while they're dozing, something incredible happens. Verse 29, as Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Your Bible, if you read it in other translations and other, even other parallel accounts, that's where we get the word transfiguration. The other gospel writers tell us Jesus was transfigured before him. That's what that phrase means. His appearance changed. It was altered. He's transformed physically right before their eyes. We're told in verse 29, his clothing became dazzling white. If you look at your footnotes, it's like the, 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 the brightness of lightning. He became dazzlingly white, intensely white, radiantly white, as white as light itself. Now, I love the detail Mark supplies in his gospel. He says, quote, extremely white as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Those are his clothes, right? So Jesus' clothes, his raiment, as it were, is just stunningly bright. Now, when I was a kid in 1987, uh, a series of books came out children's books that were published in England, they featured several scenes of vast crowds of people doing lots of amusing things. And readers were challenged to look for and to locate one character. He was a guy wearing a red and white striped shirt and a bobble hat and black glasses. Some of you know his name. And they were called Where's Wrong. No, they were called Where's Wally? They were called Where's Wally? They came out in England called Where's Wally? They didn't think Wally was going to do well marketing in America. They changed the name in America to 
Where's Waldo? There you go. There you go. So you were kind of right, right? You're kind of right. The point of it was you would open those Where Waldo's books, Where's Waldo, and you, you came to those books knowing what Waldo looked like. You had his appearance in mind. And so when you looked through the pages, you were focusing on the appearance of one individual because you already knew what he looked like. You, you were looking for Waldo and you identified Waldo based on his appearance. This is what's happening on the Mount of Transfiguration. You may not even realize this, but the descriptions of Jesus in this passage fit the descriptions of another character in the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus, in the previous verse, identified himself as the Son of Man who will come in glory and the glory of his Father. And when we go back and say, hmm, where do we find a description of the glorious Son of Man in the Old Testament scriptures? We go back to Daniel chapter 7, and there's this mysterious prophecy that Daniel records of two figures, one of the Son of Man who is coming and whom all nations will worship. But before we get to the description of the Son of Man in glory, there's also a description of God as the Ancient of Days. Daniel chapter 7. And listen to the description of the glory of the Ancient of Days. What does Daniel tell us about the Ancient of Days? Listen, Daniel chapter 9 verse or chapter 7, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool, and his throne was fiery flames. The description of the Ancient of Days matches the description of Jesus in this passage. And we know that's the case because later in the New Testament, in Revelation chapter 1, when the Apostle John sees the exalted Jesus in that vision in Revelation chapter 1, how does he describe what Jesus looked like? Revelation chapter 1, the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire and his face, listen, was like the sun shining in full strength. What's the point? Here's the point. This isn't where's Waldo. This is where's the son of man. (laughs) And if you know what the son of man looks like, you're supposed to say, this is him. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is the one who is glorious, just like the ancient of days. He shares the glory that God alone enjoys. What we find in this passage is the Son of Man in glory. Matthew in his gospel says that his face shone like the sun. Jesus' face began radiating a glorious, divine luminescence. The glory of the eternal Son of God was unveiled briefly on that mountain with these apostles. His face shone Brighter than the brightness of the noonday sun. Now, children, you remember earlier when Andrew was reading to us from the Old Testament, from the passage about Moses, 
when he says, show me your glory. And God's glory, eventually he caused his glory to pass by Moses and he was hiding in the rock. And after he saw just the, just the back parts of the glory of God, he went down the mountaintop, if you keep reading. And what had happened to Moses' face after he saw just the back part of the glory of God? Moses' face was shining. His face, it was so bright, they had to cover his face because people were afraid when they saw Moses. But what's happening in this passage is not a reflection. The the glory that's coming from Jesus isn't a reflection of glory. It's the glory itself. It's It's the difference between seeing the moon and the night sky, which is just reflecting the light of the sun, versus looking at the sun itself. What we're seeing in this event is we're seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, pulling back the veil and letting His glory shine through. John Calvin, commenting on this passage, he said this. This is amazing. I mean, imagine someone's face instantly shining like the sun. I mean, how, how, how incredible would that be? But John Calvin says, in His transfiguration, Christ gave His disciples merely, listen, a taste of his boundless glory such as they were able to comprehend. (laughs) This is just a, this is like a little, you ever go to Chick-fil-A? Remember back in the day in Chick-fil-A, you go to the mall and they don't do this anymore. They would stand outside Chick-fil-A with, with samples. Do y'all remember this? I'm dating myself. This is like a, okay, we do right here. This is a sample. This is just a sample of glory that Jesus is giving. This isn't even This isn't glory on full blast. This is just a little taste. Now, Jesus is the glorious son. And what what Luke wants you to know is, listen to him. If he's this glorious, if this is who he is, listen to him. That's the point. But that's not only it. That's not only it. He's not just the glorious son. Number two, listen to God's promised son. You must listen to Jesus because he's God's promised son. Verses 30 to 33. Look again at what happens in verses 30 to 33. We find Peter and the the other two, James and John, had dozed off. Once Jesus starts shining, they wake up and they notice there's two men there. Who are they? Verse 30. Behold, two men were talking with Jesus. Moses and Elijah. You see that? Moses and Elijah. Now, skip down to the bottom. We're going to address this really quickly. You can imagine you wake up from a nap from the prayer meeting and Jesus is being transfigured and you got Moses and Elijah in glory right there. What would you do at this point? Well, notice what Peter does. Look at verse. We always like to pick on Peter here. Look at verse 33. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And notice what Luke tells us, not knowing what he said. (laughs) Now, isn't that encouraging, right? Peter, he's just blurting out stuff. He he doesn't know what to say. He doesn't know what's going on. So he just says, oh, let me make some tents, right? Now, we know from Mark's account, 
He didn't just not know what he was saying. He wasn't just cluelessness that was provoking Peter's kind of dumb remark here. We know from Mark's gospel, we're told in Mark, for he did not know what to say for he was terrified. This is what's happened. He wakes up. This is going on. But he sees Moses. He sees Elijah. So the other two apostles. And so so what's going on? What are they talking about? What are they discussing? What is Jesus in glory discussing with these two these two folks, Moses and Elijah, perhaps the two greatest prophets from the Old Testament? What's he discussing? Verse 30. They began talking with him, Moses and Elijah, verse 31, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. If you look in your footnotes, you don't have to know Greek to know this word. The Greek word there for departure is the word exodus. Jesus is about to perform his exodus in Jerusalem. He's about to to, to, to carry on his rescue operation of God's people in Jerusalem. And so he's speaking about his exodus that's about to happen with Moses and with Elijah. Little side point, two things that happen for Moses here that are amazing. That this, this, is, this is the stuff that gets cut, but I'm going to just give you a little taste of it. I love the fact that in this passage, in the transfiguration, two things happen to Moses. One, he finally sets foot in the promised land. Isn't that beautiful? He didn't get in, but now he gets to set foot on the promised land. Number two, what did he ask? He asked God, show me your glory. Let me see your face. What happens here? God says, you had to wait, but now you can see my face in glory. It's beautiful. So Jesus is talking to Moses, who's been dead 1400 years. He's talking to Elijah, who's been dead 900 years. And they're talking with the glorified Christ about his own rescue operation, the exodus that he's about to carry out in Jerusalem. You've got the law and the prophets represented in Moses and Elijah. And so what what are we supposed to make of this? Here's what I think we're supposed to take away from this. These two guys appear representing God's prophets. And we know from the book of, of, uh, from, the, from the Pentateuch, from Deuteronomy 18, that, that these two prophets, Moses and Elijah, obviously, Moses said in Deuteronomy 18 that there's going to be a prophet that's going to come in the last days. He says in Deuteronomy 18, 15, the Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me in the last days. You must listen to him. And then you get to Deuteronomy 34 and no prophet like Moses had ever arisen in Israel. And there's still this waiting, waiting, waiting. When we get to Malachi, we're told that there's going to be a a prophet like Elijah who comes to prepare the way for this great prophet. And we know that one is fulfilled in John the Baptist. So what do we have here? We have Moses and Elijah as it were, talking to this prophet like Moses who's finally arrived. And what is the exhortation to us? Listen to him. Listen to him. This is amazing. And if you think about this, what, what, what does the father say? What, what does he say? Look at your Bibles again. Look there right in verse 35. 
And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one or my beloved one. Listen to him. The very thing that God the Father says from the cloud is the very thing we're supposed to do. We're supposed to listen to this one who is the fulfillment of all that the prophets have written. Jesus is coming to fulfill all the types and shadows, all the everything that the Exodus pointed forward to. Jesus is about to fulfill in Jerusalem. One last thing to see that he is the promised son. Verse 34. This is amazing. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Now, when you read passages like this, um, you need to stop and reflect. Okay, think about the scene, a mountaintop where people are talking with God. God's voice is about to shout. Right. And there's a glory cloud, as it were, that appears. And as a reader of the Bible, you need to pause and think. Where have I seen this before? What is happening here? Well, let's think about this. What, what, what led the people out of, 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 of Egypt? There was a, a glory cloud, a pillar of fire, a glory cloud that led the people out of Egypt. Remember all the way to the Red Sea. Remember that? Exodus 13, 21. And then at Mount Sinai, a glory cloud descended as Moses received the law. And then a glory cloud passed by Moses in Exodus 34 that we read earlier in the passage that that revealed his name. And then a glory cloud descended on the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. And then we read about a glory cloud that filled Solomon's temple at the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem. First Kings chapter eight. And then Ezekiel, because of the sins of Israel, they were sent into exile and we see the glory cloud through Ezekiel's ministry depart from the temple into the east, never to return. God's presence in the glory cloud was gone. And for 600 years, his glory cloud was never seen again. But then 2000 years ago, there were some shepherds watching over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And here on this mountaintop, what finally appears again in Israel? The glory cloud. God's glory has come in this cloud it is, it is arrived in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The very one who is here on the mountain is the one who is himself, Hebrews says, the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. The one who is the fulfillment of all those promises and types and shadows in the tabernacle and in the temple Jesus is the one in whom we find that God can dwell again with mankind. So how should we respond? How should we respond to this glorious one? We should respond by listening to him. In the past, God spoke through the fathers, through the prophets like Moses and Elijah in many portions and in many ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So listen to him. God has spoken. 
his final decisive word in his promised son. Will you listen to him? Does Jesus have your attention this morning? Are you listening to him? He's not just the glorious son. He's not just the promised son. But number three, and finally, we ought to listen to Jesus because he's God's beloved son. He's God's beloved son. Look at verses 35 and 36. Listen to God's beloved son. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one or my beloved one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. You'll notice right there that God, the father, the the same voice that spoke at Christ's baptism speaks again. This is my beloved son. I love the fact that. You know, Peter's babbling on about building tents and out of out of the void, out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Right. Shut up and listen to Jesus. Just as a heads up, if you're ever on a mountain and and Jesus appears transfigured in glory, just be quiet. (laughs) Pay attention. Don't don't talk. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. Right. Listen to him. And it doesn't just mean let the words go in your ear. Listen carries the connotation of heeding what he says, obeying what the Savior says. So how, how do we listen to the Son now? You were say, well, okay, we're supposed to listen. How do we do that? Well, we listen to the voice of the Son of God by reading and studying and meditating and obeying his word. This is how God speaks to us through Jesus, by his Spirit. This is amazing. Those of us who have this book have a Holy Spirit inspired inerrant interpretation of all of these glorious events I've just described earlier. Having, listen, having this book is better, infinitely better than physically being at the events described in this book. Listen, Peter was there that day. Remember, he was there on the mountain. He saw, he says, he saw the the, the majesty of the Savior. But what was his response? He was clueless. He was terrified. He didn't know what was happening. But listen to what Peter says. I read this earlier in the passage or in the service. He reads, he talks about this later on in his life. Second Peter chapter one, he says, we were there on the holy mountain. We were eyewitnesses of his glory. He, we heard the voice from heaven. Verse 19. Yet we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. That is more certain, more sure to which you would do well to pay attention. You see, when you read the Bible, you should never say, I wish I could have been there. <laughs> because if you had been walking through the, the Red Sea with your dad, Yitzhak, and you look up and say, what's going on here? The walls are the water are on either side. What's happening? If the dad was wise, he'd say, son, wait for the book. Wait for the book to come out because you can't interpret all this stuff without God telling you by his spirit the significance of all of it. What a, what a gift that God has given to us in his word. His Holy Spirit inspired scripture 
that supersedes even the visual and auditory experience of being there. It's amazing. You listen to God's son in the scriptures. So if you want to hear the voice of God, read the Bible. If you want to hear the voice of God audibly, read the Bible aloud. Read his word. Do you have a plan? Do you have a time and a place where you're giving yourself to listening to the scriptures? We only get about an hour and a half of time together a week. Throughout the rest of the week, you are listening constantly to other voices. And my plea as one of your pastors is you must make time every day where you can hear the voice of the Savior speaking to you from his word. If you have questions about what it means to read the Bible for yourself, talk to any member of our church. Talk to me afterwards. We want to help you know how you can get started in reading and 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 making a diet for yourself, a feast in God's holy word. One last application. I love the fact that when Jesus and Moses and Elijah get together, they talk about the gospel. Isn't that amazing? They're talking about his exodus that he's about to perform, this rescue operation. If Jesus and Moses and Elijah hang out and they talk about the gospel, when we hang out, guess what we should talk about? We can talk about all lots of, lots of stuff. You can talk about, apparently there's a football game tonight. Who cares? My team's not playing it. It doesn't matter to me, right? There's all this stuff. Amen. There's all, and they probably will never play in it again. So um, here's my point. You can talk about a lot of stuff over lunch. But do you know what you could talk about? (laughs) The gospel. Christians need to talk about the gospel with one another. The gospel isn't just news you share with non-Christians. The gospel is news that we need to be reminded of. There is depth and glory in the gospel that we haven't even plumbed the depths yet. The gospel ought to be our daily preoccupation. One of my prayers as a church is that every member of our church would gospel to one another. That is, share the good news with not only others that don't know Jesus, but with one another. When we catch a sight by faith of Jesus revealed in the gospel, do you know what happens? You're changed. Paul describes it like this. By faith, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being what? Transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 2 Corinthians 3.18 You ought to make it your lifelong goal, brothers and sisters, to study the gospel of Christ's glory and grace. John Newton gave some great counsel when he said this, quote, take a lodging as near as you can to Gethsemane and walk daily to Mount Golgotha. We need to be reminded of the gospel every single day. I think it was Tim Keller who once said the gospel, it isn't the ABCs of the Christian life. It's the A to Z of the Christian life. And there is wonder here. You read this passage. I don't know. When you read this passage about the transfiguration, do you read it and just say, "Okay, big deal. It happened 2000 years ago. Whatever. What does that have to do with my life? But as you plumb the depths of this passage. 
Do you see the connections and the reflections of the gospel? Let's just think about this for a minute as we close. On this mountain of transfiguration, the Son of God was revealed in divine glory. But just in a few chapters from now, on a hill called Golgotha, Jesus is crucified, bearing the shame of his people. A bright cloud overshadowed the Mount of Transfiguration and his glory shone brighter than the noonday sun. Yet on the cross, a deep darkness covered the whole land from the sixth hour until the ninth hour. A deep darkness, just like the darkness that fell over Egypt during the Exodus. The very hour that the Savior, the one who is the light of the world, was performing our Exodus on the cross. He was delivering us from the domain of darkness, but he himself was covered in darkness. On the mountain, on either side of him, Jesus had two holy men, Moses and Elijah, two great men of God. But on the cross, Jesus has two criminals, one on the left and one on the right. As he poured out his soul to death, the glorious one was numbered with the transgressors and bearing the sins of many. At the transfiguration, Christ's clothes became white as light as the glorious son of God. And yet on the cross, the light of the world was stripped naked and mocked and put to open shame. And the Roman soldiers divided his garments by casting lots. All of this was to fulfill the scriptures, by the way. And on the mountain, probably the greatest contrast. On that mountain, God the Father publicly declared from heaven, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. But on the cross, this very beloved son cries out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried that cry because he was bearing the wrath of God on the cross in our place for our sins. But sisters, the glorious one of Luke 9 is the one who died in our place. That's amazing. It's amazing. God the Father has given us his only son to be our savior. He could give us 10,000 worlds, but he only has one son to give. And he's given him to us. The glorious one, the beloved one of the father, left glory, humbled himself, took on flesh, dwelt among us. Yes, we beheld his glory, but he came to be a suffering servant. And to die to atone for the sins of his people. 
If you're not a a follower of Jesus, that's the good news of the gospel. We deserve his wrath. We deserved his condemnation because of our sins. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. But in his mercy, he offers us life and forgiveness and grace to any who will receive in the empty hands of faith the Lord Jesus Christ who has risen for our justification. How could you not trust him? Knowing who this is, how could you not trust him? And just when you think that it couldn't get any better to have this one as our savior, God's word tells us that there's going to be a transfiguration coming in the future where we're never going to have to say, man, I wish I could have been there. If you're a Christian, do you realize you're going to be transfigured one day? God's word says that you're going to be transformed from one degree of glory to another now. But when Christ, the glorious one, comes in his glory, we're going to be transformed. Beloved, we are God's children now. And yet what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be made like him because we will see him as he is. You're going to be transfigured. So don't look at this passage like, man, I missed out. You're going to be transfigured. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. Colossians 3, 4. He's going to come from heaven and transform the body of our lowliness into conformity with the body of his glory by the power that he has even to submit all things to himself. Philippians 3, 20. You're going to be transformed. You're going to be transfigured. You're going to be glorified. For those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's good news. That's good news for us. But it gets even better. When we are in glory, because of our spirit-wrought faith union with Christ, the scripture says we will be clothed in white robes one day. White robes that have been washed perfectly clean by the blood of the Lamb. He's going to make all things new. And when he comes and he glorifies us with glorified eyes, we're told that the city that we're going to be living in, the city to come, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp is the lamb. And we're also promised that one day, according to Revelation 22, 4, We will see his face. So, Christian, until that day, until that day that we're presented before him, blameless in glory, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done. What do we do until that day? We listen to him. We listen to him. He says to us, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father. But by me, he says to us, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I'm gentle and lowly. Come to him. Jesus is speaking even this morning. Through his word.
Are you listening? Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the Son that you've given to us, the one who is our elder brother, the one who is our king, the one who is our second Adam, the one who is our savior and our redeemer, the one who is our ruler and our shepherd and our guide and our God. Oh Lord, we pray that you'd give us a sight of his glory that we might be changed into his image. And that as we are changed, we would live lives worthy of the calling that we've received. Do this for us, we pray. For it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen.